0: Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at TrinityOwasso.com. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord... And a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, Who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has pillaged his treasures, sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau, And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the exiles of the host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephiroth shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. This Lenten season, we're exploring the gospel and the minor prophets. And this week, we start with this little known book called Obadiah. Children, can you say Obadiah? Obadiah. Obadiah. It's a little book. It's only 21 verses. We just read the whole book. You can say to your mom and dad, I read a book today. 21 verses. The New Testament authors never quote Obadiah. The message of Obadiah is this, and please have ears to hear, that pride in the heart becomes patterns of sin in the life. Pride in the heart becomes patterns of sin in in the life. Now Obadiah is an easily forgotten Old Testament minor prophet. He's called minor not because it's unimportant. Minor prophets are called minor because they're so short. And the minor prophets were all put on one scroll so they could be easily accessible to the ancient uh, people of God. And under God's authority, Obadiah writes a message Of divine judgment through oracles. An oracle is a message given to one who is an authority to be passed to people under authority. Obadiah's name means servant of the Lord. And so as a servant of the Lord, Obadiah zeroes in on a people called the Edomites, and he has a lot to say. Did you know that besides Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, the Edomites have more judgment oracles against them than any other ancient superpower? The Edomites were people who lived uh, to the southeast of Jerusalem and of Judah. The Edomites are people who had been pushed south of the border, as you can see on the map behind us in the yellow. They are those who resided near Israel, but just to the south. And the Edomites, therefore, had lots of interactions with their brothers and their sisters in Judah. The people of Edom were unique among all the nations of the world because they shared a family lineage with Israel. They were, as we'll soon discover, kissing cousins. But Edom had one sin that Obadiah goes after, and that sin was a sin of pride. And so Obadiah teaches us, Identifies pride, and it shows us the proof of that pride, the patterns of that pride, and the possibilities out from pride. And so we're going to talk about those four things together pride, proof, patterns, and possibilities. First, pride. In verse 1, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent from among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations and you shall be utterly despised. Seems harsh, doesn't it? (laughs) Why is God rebuking them? You know, Edom geographically was just 20 or 30 miles wide and 100 miles long. And on the east, it was all desert. And to the north, there were these amazing lands to cultivate and to grow. They had incredibly productive farms on the northern side of Edom. But more importantly than the geography was that Edom was situated in these red sandstone cliffs of what today is in Jordan. And these Cliffs were situated along a major trade route, and so the Edomites would be able to levy taxes for people who were passing into Jerusalem through Edom from the ancient world. And they would be living on cliffs, which by their nature were incredibly fortified. They had extremely secure houses. These cliffs, if you've ever been over there, you know that these cliffs rise up to 5,000 feet, almost as if coming out of the sea itself. It's incredibly intimidating, and this is the land of the Edomites. And so, here these people of Edom were free to wage war on whom they wanted to wage war, to levy taxes on those that came through for trade, and they felt like they were relatively safe from outside interference. Then he says in verse 3, the pride of your hearts have deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwellings, who say in your heart, who will bring us to the ground? There it is. There's their high abodes where they live in the clefts of those rocks. Now, Edom is unique among the nations because they had a relationship with Israel. And do you remember in the Old Testament that Abraham and his wife Sarah had a son and his name was Isaac. And Isaac and his wife Rebekah, they had sons, twins in fact. And when Rebecca was pregnant with her twins, the Lord said to her in Genesis 25, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And you remember the story in Genesis chapter 25, the firstborn was red and he was hairy and they named him Esau. And his twin brother his younger brother was grabbing at his heel and when the second son came out they named him the heel grabber jacob jacob and esau was isaac's favorite he hunted he killed things he was a man's man and jacob was a gardener and he was rebecca's favorite And one day Esau came in from the field and he had found nothing to kill. He was empty handed. He was starving. And he came to his brother who was making red stew. And he said to Jacob, would you give me some of your lentil stew? And do you remember what Jacob said? Jacob said to Esau, I will give you some of my lentil stew as soon as you sell me your birthright. That is, you sell me all the rights as the firstborn. And Esau, famished, desired to satisfy his physical need. And in the moment, he said, no problem. And he sold him his birthright. In other words, Esau turned from his covenant relationship that he had with his father, of whom he was the favorite. And he traded it for a bowl of soup. You hear the phrase, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You, know? you hear that before that phrase, the old English phrase, don't, let, don't sell one's birthright for a bowl of soup for a bowl of pottage. It comes from the story of Esau and Jacob. And Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, and Edom, and, and Esau's name was later changed to Edom. And so here is Obadiah quoting the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, and he tells them the pride of your hearts has deceived you. And the descendants, whew, Acorns don't fall far from the tree. And it's for the reason of their pride that judgment came to the nation. Now, most of us don't consider um, pride, frankly, that big of a deal. When I was a, a young boy, we, we played on a traveling soccer team. Our travel team and our, our, our travel soccer team was called pride. <laughs> it was a mark of courage. It was a mark of glamour. Pride! We're proud of who we are. But James Montgomery Boyce makes the point, years ago in Philadelphia when he was preaching, he said, you know, the problem with pride is that pride is actually the one thing that people will never identify. If you were to nominate elders and deacons like we have in the past, and we'll soon announce to you those men who are ready to become uh, our elders and deacons upon the confirmation of the Holy Spirit through your vote. If I were to say, you know, he is a good man, but he's proud. You'd probably go, okay, that's curious. But if I said, no, he's a good man, but he's a thief. Immediately, you're morally outraged. And you write that person off as he's not a candidate to be an elder or a leader in this church. Or he's a good man, but he struggles with sexual addiction. Oh. Or, or he's a good man, but he, um, he murders people in his heart. Oh. But why is it that when we say he's a good man, but he's proud, we just simply go, Huh. The answer Obadiah teaches us is that pride goes so deep to the heart you don't even notice it. What was the first sin that the father of all sin, the father of all lies, Satan, committed when he was in the Lord? What does Isaiah chapter 14 tell us? It says that when, that I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high, Isaiah says, Satan said to the Lord. That his fundamental sin was, was pride. Because pride in the heart becomes patterns of sin in the life. And pride of heart is an attitude of life that declares one's ability to live without God. When Evagrius in the 4th century was, was thinking about what were the sins that were uh, tempting the desert fathers, he came up with a list of eight, eight sins and his disciple John Cassian behind him renumbered those sins. And when Gregory uh, the Great was Pope, he took those eight sins and he eliminated one of them. And he had seven sins. And then when Thomas Aquinas came, a couple hundred years later, Thomas Aquinas called them the seven deadly sins. There were, originally, there were eight deadly sins. What was the Eighth. Well, Gregory and Aquinas pulled out pride, which was actually Evagoras' number one. And he said, this one is so foundational to all the rest of them. It is so deadly because it infuses every other sin. And here, Edom, living in their lofty dwellings, living in their abodes where they seem like they are safe, are just swimming in their pride. Though you're aloft like the eagles, though your nest is set among the stars, verse 4, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Pride comes before the fall. And Esau is a case study for how this pride develops. Guys, he had his father's approval. He was Isaac's favorite. But he turned from his Bechorah, his firstborn birthright, He turned from his covenant relationship and he said, I can go on my own. I'm resilient. I can hunt. I can survive out in the world. And here his descendants, Edom, what do they say? They say the exact same thing. They thought they were invincible because they had impregnable defenses in Edom. The idols of their heart. Any of you ever heard of Petra near Selah? Petra, this beautiful building carved into the, some of you have been there. That was an Edomite city. How do you defend that? You walk miles through a very narrow shaft. And they they were incredibly confident. Not only did they believe their impregnable defenses would protect them, but they had a network of allies. And in verse 7 of Obadiah, what does it say? It says, your allies, your allies will deceive you. The ones that you once broke bread with, which is a, a reference to making a covenant over a meal together. The ones that you had a covenant with, oh, they will deceive you. And they, in fact, will destroy you. And when when Judah was taken by the Babylonians in 586 BC, did you know that in 553 BC, right after that, Nebuchadnezzar kept right on going, and who did he take next? Oh, though he had made a covenant with Edom, though they had broken bread together, the network that they thought they'd established for themselves broke down, and Edom himself was conquered. Not only did they have impregnable defenses, not only were they well-networked, but verse 8 says that they were smart people. The Edomites were exceptionally wise. And as I look across this room, I see a lot of people with impregnable defenses and a lot of people who are well-networked and a lot of people who were very smart. And when the wisdom of the world came to Job, do you remember Job? He had three friends. Do you remember his friends? Bildad. How did he describe Bildad. Bildad was a Shuhite. That's a mountain in Edom. The wise Bildad was an Edomite. Or Eliphaz, he was a Temanite. That was the capital of Edom. Eliphaz was an Edomite. These are the ones who came from the east. It says of Solomon, so that all of Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people in the east. The people of the east refer to the wisdom of, of the Edomites. And so here's Edom living on their high rocks in the desert perches. And metaphorically, they had their noses in the air because they believed that they were better than everybody else, especially the Israelites. Impregnable defenses, well networked, smart people. And it all goes back to those brothers. What's the proof? Well, the proof in verses 10 and 11 is because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. When Babylon invaded Judah, what did Edom do? Edom didn't stand up for their brother. They didn't say and learn from their ancestor, I am my brother's keeper. What did they say? They said, oh, do you need the door opened? Well, go ahead. And they just stood aloft. And so notice Thunderclap after thunderclap after thunderclap. What this, the patterns that begin to emerge. You just stood aloof while your brothers carried, had their wealth carried off, verse 11. And all the foreigners, the Babylonians, entered their gates and they cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. And Obadiah teaches us that though Edom didn't actively participate in the desecration, their passivity nevertheless makes them culpable. You know, in in the class that the elders are teaching on uh, the larger catechism, you know, the larger catechism is is basically broken into two sections, what the Scriptures teach us concerning God and what our responsibilities are in light of who God is and what He's done for us. And in the larger catechism, the Westminster Confession was an early discipleship course for adults. And when you get to question, oh, it's around, uh, you know, 100 and they start going through the Ten Commandments. When, when you get to the Ten Commandments, they, they, most of them say, do not. But the confession actually says, what therefore does the commandment call you to do? And in question 135, it says, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? Thou shall not murder. And we think, well, just don't murder. But listen to the way the divines help us understand that it's not our actions Activity or our active involvement in sin that often becomes the thing for which we are most guilty, but it is our passivity and not pushing toward what is right in that situation. 135, what are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts, purposes, and subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices, which tend to the unjust taking away of the life of any. By just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, chillfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat and drink and medication and sleep and labor and recreations, "...by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceableness, mild and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiring good for evil, comforting and securing the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent." (laughs) And the Edomites said, well, we didn't do anything wrong. We didn't kill anybody. No, you didn't, but you didn't preserve the life of yourself or of any. And the book of Obadiah takes the form of this covenantal lawsuit and he puts this passive people right in the sights and he says, you are guilty because the pride in your heart has deceived you. The pride. The proof of that pride which led to violence. And notice the pattern. In verse 11, it says that they stood aloof. In verse 12, notice the verbs. They gloated in private. Verse 12b, they rejoiced in public. Verse 12c, they boasted. They they motivated others to join in with them. In 13a, they entered the gates. In 13b, they gloated to Jacob's face. In 13c, they looted his wealth. And then right when you think that the Lord's judgment is just going to come down on Edom and just hammer them, this little book of Obadiah turns in verse 15, and it says, the day of the Lord is near against, you would think it would say against Edom, but it says what? Against all nations, against all of those who turn from the covenant relationship with the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming for them. And it says it's not only for Edom, but it's for everyone, which means who else? Us. And Obadiah says that everyone who acts pridefully is like Edom, who comes under God's judgment. And in this lintzen season, it's an opportunity for us to recognize that there are good necessary reasons for us perhaps to come under the Lord's fatherly gaze of conviction of sin and for us to respond to him because you have the possibility of something different than what Edom chose. You see the pride in your own heart. You know the proof of it. You see the patterns of sin that go deep in your heart. But the possibilities are beautiful. Why? Because notice in verses 15 through 21, in verses 1 to 15 in Hebrew, it is all you, singular. It is you, Edom. You, Edom. Judgment, judgment, judgment. But in verses 16 through 21, it's beca- it becomes you, plural. He's talking to you, the people of God. He's saying, now turn from the example of Edom, O people of God, O people of Trinity, and walk with me. Listen, uh, the historian Arnold 20 B says that there, are t- there were 21 great civilizations in this world. Twenty-one. And every single one of them fell. And pride was the first thing that caused that great empire or nation to fall. What about us? What about our country? What about your family? What about you? Do you have ears to hear how the message to Edom is also a message to you? The Lord placed a blessing on Abraham, and this blessing extended to Jacob, and this blessing was then extended to all of Judah. And you can see in verses 19 through 21 how the blessing is passed down, because it says that those of the Negev, they shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. This is God's covenantal language, saying, I'm going to give you possession over your enemies. And the exiles of this host of the people of Israel, they shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. What does Obadiah show us about the possibilities of where our pride can lead us? Well, Obadiah shows us, friends, that our pride can lead us to repentance and hope. Why? First of all, because of God's electing love. God's electing love. In Romans chapter 10, Paul looks back at the story of Esau and Jacob and he says, and not only so, but also that when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, and though they were not even yet born yet, he had, and they had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Quoting from Malachi chapter 1. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Jacob was the second born. He was not the attractive one. He was not even the father's favorite. And yet God chose him. Why? Deuteronomy chapter 7. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. And he has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more numerous than all the other nations. It was not, Trinity, because of the good works that God saw through the quarter of time. It was not because you were more numerous or that you had more to offer that he chose you. But You, you are the fewest of all people. It is, because, it is because the Lord loves you. And he is keeping the oath that he swore to your forefathers. So friends, turn from your pride because of your Savior's electing love for you. He's called you to respond to him in joy. And he has set you apart. Do you believe this? And secondly, God protects his people with his covenant faithfulness. That's what Obadiah teaches us. Verse 17 is a promise. There shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. The Lord says that I have chosen Jacob as my treasured possession. Isaiah 43 says, But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. There's nothing that you can do that can outrun God's covenant love for you. So why would you not want to, with joy, turn from all of the broken cisterns of your life and to come back to see your Savior's love? He knows, He loves you. Pride deceives. The proof is so evident even in your own life. You see the patterns of sin in your life, but the possibilities because we're in Christ are amazing of his electing love, of his covenant faithfulness to us. He preserves Jacob, and the Lord is the final judge, verse 15. The whole passage hinges on verse 15. The Lord is the one who judges. Judgment is in the hands of the Lord, and he is coming after everyone who sins who is not in Christ. And after the Babylonians invaded Judah, as I mentioned earlier, they came for Edom next. There was despite their lofty dwellings and their, in, their, their, their incredible defenses, despite their networking, despite, despite their confidence that they would be secure, within a generation, they were decimated. And after the, the Babylonians came and took them, the Nabataeans took over the capital city of Selah and they, they built up Petra to be the beauty that it is today. And then after that, the Greeks came and when Alexander the Great conquered the area in the 4th century B.C., they named the area Idumea. And after the Romans displaced the Greeks as the dominant power in Canaan, they permitted the Idumeans to enjoy a little a season of independence. And among those Edomites, the Idumeans, came the Herods. Herod the Idumean. And isn't it interesting that the tension between two brothers, Jacob and Esau, comes all the way into the judgment of Jesus when Herod the Great was the first one to try to what? To kill baby Jesus and his son. Herod Antipas is there with Jesus. And that, the irony of the trial with Jesus is that here you have two kings of the Jews, <laughs> Herod Antipas and Jesus. The descendant of Esau and the true and greater Jacob. And the cross is just playing and retelling what happened in Genesis chapter 25. Heirs of Isaac, heirs of the covenant. And Jesus says before Esau, Not only am I going to offer you my lentil soup but I'm in fact gonna die to provide it for you. The king of the Jews, put there not by the emperor, but by his father who loved him. And the question for you, friends, is that which king are you going to choose? The pattern of Esau or the pattern of the true and greater Jacob, Jesus? Because at the cross, Jesus gave his life for you to provide for you something that satisfies you far more deeply than physical need. He came to satisfy you spiritually and satisfy you in every way, now in part and one day in full. And like the other minor prophets, Obadiah reminds us of God's redemption coming through his promise from Abraham to Jacob to David to Jesus. And he will not forsake those upon whom he has placed his favor. And your heavenly father will continue his redemptive plan until that plan is complete. And when you read the book of Obadiah, these 21 verses, You hear echoing in the background the words of Jesus, the true and better Jacob, who said, It is finished. Turn from your pride, which deceives, and let us behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.